Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Okay, in our series, we're going heavy duty right now because for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about Bible prophecy about the end times. And I'm just going to follow a flight plan with you before I get started. One of the greatest challenges is for a Bible teacher or minister to talk about these things. And I'll tell you why. Prophecy is interspersed throughout the whole Bible. In fact, one fourth of our Bible is God giving us prophecies about the future. But there's a little here and a little there. And so every time I get ready to preach on prophecy, my first feeling is I really need to preach the whole Bible, but we only have about 35 or 40 minutes. And so what I plan to do in each one of these messages with the help of God is to cut into the narrative and just take out a sampling, a slice, and to pray that it'll, it'll be coherent for us enough to where we'll be able to draw a big understanding about the times that you and I are living in. So let's make a start. From the beginning of time until now, God speaks to our world. It's really important to think about that. God speaks to our world. For anyone who will listen, God declares two messages above all. He wants to tell us how things went wrong and his plan to make things right. It's so important because one thing all of us earth dwellers know, especially in the season we're in right now, things are painfully wrong. So that's what you have when you pick up a Bible. Those two messages. Number one, What's wrong? God says it's sin. Now, the moment I use the term sin, people will start thinking about individual sins. Is this sin? Is that sin? Hey, the definition for sin is given to us in Isaiah 53 in the sixth verse. The Bible says all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. If you want to define sin, that's it. That's true whether it's conservative sin or liberal sin or, or white-collar sin or blue-collar sin. You know, all the sins that we say are okay and not okay, you know, our list, it all comes down to one thing. We have left God's path to follow our own. Now, it started before there was a human being. Back in time, God created angels, and one of them went rogue. His name was Satan, the most powerful of the angels. And he said, I don't want to go God's way. I want to go my way. And that's how evil started in our universe. Well, then the day came when God made the human race, Adam and Eve, and they signed on to Satan's rebellion. They left God's paths in the Garden of Eden, and they followed their own. They said, we have a better plan. And then the entire human race followed, including you and me. And here's the deal. You can look at all the brokenness in our universe right now, and it goes right back to one thing, sin. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Now, God declares that. That's the first message of the Bible when God speaks. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. The second thing God does is he tells us about his plan to make things right. Biggest thing I'll ever say in all my career right now, God's plan is always a savior. Now, here's the deal. You can open up this book and you see a lot of personal instruction that God gives for us about how to live a better life. But as far as God's plan to take us out of sin into redemption, it is always a savior. Now, 
The Bible is divided basically into the two visitations of this Savior. The first time our Savior visits our world, it's to make a way for our inner brokenness to be healed. That's, well, you read about the Old Testament promising that he's going to come in the Gospels. We see Jesus come to our world 2,000 years ago in his first coming. He dealt with our, as I said, inner brokenness 2,000 years ago. But that's not the only time he's going to visit our world. Our Savior, God's solution to our sin, is coming the second time to make the world new. Let's make sure we understand that. The first time, it's to bring individual redemption. The second time he's coming, he's coming to redeem this broken mess that you and I live in. So there you have it. Into our brokenness, God speaks. But this world system you and I live in doesn't listen much, mostly because man doesn't like God's two messages at all, and Satan really hates them. What it all comes down to is just a complete disagreement. First of all, Broken mankind disagrees with God's diagnosis of the problem, sin. We know we left God's ways to follow our own. Man says, that can't be the problem. I like going my own way. Second, he disagrees with God's solution. Man says that he can find the solutions for all the brokenness by going his own way. Think about that. Man thinks that the solution is the problem. We left God's ways to follow our own, but man says he can find the solutions by going his own way. And what do we have with thousands of years of history? We know he winds up pouring gasoline on the fire. Well, I have a job to do today. I I have the job of communicating God's message. And it'll be uphill. I know that. Truth always is uphill. And there's a reason why preachers tend to stay away from what you and I are going to be talking about for the next three weeks. Because this message is unpopular, oftentimes ministers will become unpopular, teachers will become unpopular when they teach what God has to say about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's not fun to be vilified by the world system. So here's what happens with a lot of Bible teachers and Bible preachers, and we feel this today. They try to synthesize God's message with the message of the world system. In other words, it's like, well, God says a little bit here, but you know, in order to make it popular, I'm gonna bring it together and synthesize it. Imagine that, trying to bring together opposites as if somehow God has called preachers to negotiate a settlement for him. Well, the word of God makes it real plain that that's not possible. In 2 Corinthians 6, the Bible says, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? And maybe that helps us understand a lot of the, well, the sort of saltlessness of the modern church. Jesus looked into the future and he saw the church in the last days. He says in Revelation 3, I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I'm trying to find that middle ground. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For all of you at New Spring and all of you watching this broadcast, I, I tell you this to prepare us for this series. In the world that you and I live in, and even among modern Christianity, this series, for the reasons I've already given, is going to be somewhat confrontational. And on a personal note, That's not comfortable for me. Anybody who knows me knows that I especially don't like confrontation. I'm an affirmer. (laughs) And between you and me, there are so many times when I wonder why God called me. 
But when I think about it, sometimes it makes sense. We all know what happens when a confrontational person confronts. The message often gets lost in the attitude. So maybe that's why God called me to bring this message. But it's not about me anyway. God speaks. We should listen. So here we go. In God's plan, as we saw a few moments ago, Jesus came the first time to deal with the brokenness inside of us. He died to pay for our sins and rose from the grave. That's phase one, to use a popular term today. But right before he left, he gave us phase two of God's plan. This is Jesus on the night of his arrest before his crucifixion. This is huge. Jesus said to his disciples, who were freaked out about him telling them that he was going to leave them, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. It hasn't happened yet, but I think about that today. Jesus said, if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, look at these next three words, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. You see this broken world? Oh, that's easy today. That's God's solution to this broken world. A savior, Jesus returning. Let me say that one more time. I don't think I can say it strongly enough. When you look at the broken world that you and I live in, God's solution to that broken world is Jesus coming back to make things right. It always was God's solution. Never anything less and never anything more. Now, real quickly, that doesn't mean that we aren't to do all that we can in this broken world. Hey, that's what so much of the Bible is about. God is giving us instruction. He's left us here to be agents of Jesus, agents for change. But still, not wanting to rain on anybody's parade, with everything good that we can do, according to God's word, nothing is going to fully redeem this world until Jesus returns. Well, our series is called Signs of the Times. <laughs> I'm 63. I've been in the ministry since I was 16, or at least been preaching since I was 16, pastoring since I've been 20. I can't tell you how many times I've brought sermons called Signs of the Times. But it's so important for our, our world right now. See, here's the thing. For anyone willing to pay attention to God with hundreds of verses in the Bible, God gives us signs, what to be watching for, so that we will know the season when Jesus will return. Now, real quickly, the Bible tells us that nobody knows that exact day or that hour when Jesus will return. I don't know exactly why God said that. Perhaps because God see seasons in which he gives us a little more time. We'll see. I don't know. That's up to God. But here is what God does do. He gives us clues, signs, signals, so that we will know what's going to happen right before Jesus comes back. Now, here is one of the major complications about studying the return of Jesus. Because when you dive into this thing about Jesus coming back, his return is divided into two operations because he has two jobs to do. Now, one more time. When Jesus comes back to make everything right, there are two operations. The first time that he comes back, he returns above the earth. Doesn't touch down. It's an evacuation. Now, if you really want to expand on this, 
we have a series that we did uh, called Clash of Dynasties, and I do a message on the evacuation. If you want to have a whole message on that, you can check that out. But now here's the deal. This first phase of Jesus' return is necessary because right after that, the world is going to go through a seven-year convulsion where all kinds of terrible things are going to happen. The term the Bible uses, and it's a term that a lot of people have heard before, is the term the tribulation. In order to understand the tribulation, Jesus put it this way. He said it's the worst time the world's ever gone through or the worst time, it'll be worse than anything the world would ever go through after. And he pointed out in a sermon that Jesus preached while he was on the earth in his first coming, he pointed out that the time period had to be short, hence seven years, short or nobody would survive. So we know Jesus is coming back, evacuation, not touching down. He's going to take those with him who have already accepted him to keep them out of this seven-year convulsion. What is the seven-year thing about this tribulation? Well, this is where it gets really complicated and interesting. The tribulation is God's judgment on sin. But the interesting thing, as I see it, is most of this judgment on sin, God does by stepping back and just basically letting the world go. You know, man has said from the beginning that he resents God, and we feel that in America today. And I know that many of you are watching outside the United States, but here in the United States, we have had a systematic rejection of God. He's been kicked out of our schools. He's been kicked out of our courts. It's one of the reasons why our courts are having so much trouble today. There's a lack of justice because we've kicked God out. So here's what happens in the tribulation. God says, you don't want me. You don't want me around. I'm not a useful hypothesis anymore. You don't believe I'm a creator. You want to go your own way. You want to choose Satan. God says, let me step back and you can take a world at what the world would look like if Satan had his way. That's why the tribulation is going to be so bad. And it's an understanding of why Jesus is going to, in the first phase, get believers out of the way. Now, the second operation of Jesus coming is at the end of that seven years. He will touch down this time at the end of the tribulation. And he's going to, I mean, he, he comes from heaven. We're with him. He is going to TCOB. He's going to take care of business at Armageddon. He's going to, after that war, ride into the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to begin to rule. You know, Christmas is coming up. You remember in the Christmas message, the angel told Mary about Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. See, God made a promise to David in the Old Testament. We don't really have a lot of time to talk about this today. But God made a promise to David and said, one of your descendants will be on the throne forever. Well, there hasn't been a Jewish king for 2,500 years. But we know that Jesus is coming. And at the end of that seven years, he is going to ride into the city of Jerusalem and nothing will ever stop his kingdom again. He's going to make the world right. Now, God worked it out so that the Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself and then the apostles in the New Testament could fill our baskets with signals, signs to let us know when we're getting close. And by now, there are, there, there are so many signs of Jesus' return, I'm not even going to be able to make a start. If you're interested in looking at this in greater detail, we did two series the last two summers called Clash of Dynasties I and Clash of Dynasties II, and you can check those out. But 
As I said, our baskets are full now, signs of Jesus' return. Let's hit a couple of highlights. What Jesus taught us, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles taught us, we were taught to watch Israel because a major sign of the near return of Jesus is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Here's the deal. Israel was carried away into captivity. Part of it, 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Second part of it, 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Now, from that point on, Israel has been in Gentile hands. But as we saw the prophets, you can check this out in Ezekiel 37. God said in the last days he was going to restore Israel and Israel become a nation once again. You know, we're so familiar with the modern-day nation of Israel, it's kind of hard for us to process the fact that in 1948, something happened that for 2,500 years hadn't happened. Israel became a nation. I'm thankful that the United States and President Harry Truman, we were the first nation to recognize the modern-day state of Israel. Now, here's one of the things that we need to make very clear in the Bible, because Israel is a sign, but then Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is a sign within itself. Now... It's throughout the Bible. As I said, prophecy is interspersed throughout Scripture. But on this particular one, Jesus personally called it. We're talking about Jesus now. He's on the earth in his first coming, and he's telling about the disciples have asked him, tell us the signs of your coming in the end times. Jesus gave this whole list. It's a sermon that we call the Olivet Discourse. Now, here's what Jesus said. He said the Jewish people would go away as captives to all the nations of the world. I just gave you the dates for that. And then he said, and Jerusalem, look, listen to this, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Well, I don't have a whole lot of time to sketch this out, but, but here's something really interesting. At least I find it very interesting, especially regarding what Jesus said. When the modern day nation of Israel formed, the Jews were reluctant to do anything with Jerusalem. I mean, they, they just kind of like left it in Jordanian hands and they began to look at Tel Aviv as their major city. It was like, okay, we have enough trouble on our hands. We really don't want to make Jerusalem a big issue. But the Six-Day War happened in 1967 and the Israelis did not want to get into a struggle with the Jordanians who had control of Jerusalem. But for some reason, the Jordanians joined in the conspiracy or into the into the attacking group that was attacking Israel. And Israel had to fight the Jordanians because they had attacked them. And in that battle, the nation of Israel recovered the city of Jerusalem. But remember what Jesus said? He said Jerusalem would be in Gentile hands until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Do you know Gentile leaders, including our leaders in the United States, kind of had their hands around the throat of Jerusalem a little bit. Even in the United States, we had agreed that we would, we would officially designate Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. But even though that was on the books, U.S. leaders would not push that. But in 2017, something major happened. The United States recognized Jerusalem as the capital of the nation of Israel. And for the first time, Jerusalem, well, for the first time in really 2,500 years, for the first time, Jerusalem was considered the capital of the nation of Israel. Hey, I had the privilege of being there last year as a guest of the nation of Israel. 
And there's a picture of myself and the Consul General uh, here in the United States for the Southwest standing outside the new embassy. And I remember that moment last June when I stood there and I thought, I have in my lifetime lived to watch Jesus' word and prophecy about the last days come true. Now, okay, let's see where we are. We've already watched the signs regarding Israel and Jerusalem, but Jesus goes on talking because he says, after that, after Jerusalem comes back, there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Now we're talking about the tribulation, the seven-year period that we've already talked about. Jesus said, here on the earth, nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming on the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. That's phase two, when Jesus actually comes to the earth. The first coming, the evacuation has already happened by verse 27. So Jesus said, (laughs) this is major. In fact, you just heard our worship team sing this a few moments ago. When all these things, huge word, begin to happen, stand up and look up for your salvation or your redemption is close. And then he gave them this illustration. He said, notice the fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel here, or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer's near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. Listen to Jesus. He said, watch Israel, watch Jerusalem. And then he told us to pay attention to some of the things that were going to happen in the tribulation. Now, for those of us who are Christ followers, we're not going to go through the tribulation. We're we're part of that phase one. But let's talk about where we are, because this series is called Signs of the Times. And so, obviously, you could look at the regathering of Israel and it becoming a nation. You could see that as a sign. You could see what was going on in Jerusalem. You could see that as a sign. But now we're watching stuff that probably is going to be big in the tribulation period. And we're seeing those things happen. And as we see things that we know are going to factor into the tribulation, we can know that we're getting very close. Let me go off on a side trail for a moment. You know, it is odd that Christians, I'm talking about a lot of pastors especially, it's like we quit talking about the coming of the Lord. You know, 50 years ago, I mean, 50, 60 years ago, Hal Lindsey wrote his book, Great, Late Great Planet Earth. It was a bestseller. You know, there were all kinds of, there were all kinds of sermons, there were all kinds of music. I mean, even Hollywood got into it. Hollywood had a lot of movies, and some of them were pretty oddly accurate about the tribulation and the Antichrist. But it's like it's gotten quiet all of a sudden. You know, and that raises a question. Have the signs fizzled? I mean, are we seeing fewer signs leading up to the coming of the Lord? <laughs> Not at all. You know, as I was getting ready for this message, for all of you watching outside the United States, you need to know that we have a holiday coming up where we we, we, we detonate a lot of fire, fireworks. It, we, it's 4th of July for us. It's, it's a celebration of our independence. So Americans love to shoot off fireworks. I, I've done it since I was a kid. Today, they're very sophisticated. When I was a little kid, you know, we, we didn't really have that many firework, fireworks. It was bottle rockets and Roman candles and firecrackers and stuff like that. And I never had a whole lot of money, but I saved up my money to buy fireworks. And one of the things I bought a lot of, because they were cheap, I bought a lot of firecrackers. 
And you know, when you first get those firecrackers, you know, at the beginning of the fireworks, you know, on, on, fourth, on the 4th of July, you, 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 you shoot them off one at a time. You carefully unlace the fuses, you know, and then you, you detonate one, and then, you know, you might tie together two, and you hear pop, pop, and then you might tie together a few more. But there was always that moment when I got to the end of the night, and I still had several packages of firecrackers left, and you'd light off the whole package. Now, for all of us who are familiar with that, you know the sound that makes when a whole package of firecrackers are detonated and pop, 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 you hear that sound. Well, when I think about the signs of the coming of the Lord, it's like if you go back 100 years ago, it might be pop, another pop, and then maybe a couple of pops. But the times that you and I are living in right now, it's like the whole pack is going off at one time. Okay. Israel, that's settled. It's a nation. After 2,500 years, happened in 1948. Jerusalem, 1967, 2017. It's already in place. So now we need to watch for signs of the seven-year tribulation. Why do I say that? Because 2020, 2020, the year we live in, has been full of them. Let me see if I can take something complicated and streamline it. The tribulation, the stuff that's going to go down in those seven years, is spelled out in the book of Revelation. If you want to read about the tribulation, it starts in Revelation chapter 6 with the entrance of the Antichrist, and it ends in chapter 20. So everything between Revelation 6 and Revelation 20 have to do with the tribulation period. Now, when you read about those seven years, between you and me, between you know, Revelation 6 and 20, there's a lot of mind-blowing stuff in the middle. And it's so easy to get lost in all the bad things that are going to happen. There are the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and all the things that happen. It's easy to get lost in that. If you want to understand the tribulation, if you really want to know what's going on in the tribulation, and more importantly, recognize the signs as we get close, there's one explanatory line. I mean, take the whole seven-year tribulation, and there's one line in chapter 13 that explains it. So if you take that line and you work backward, then you can understand the tribulation. Here is the line. They, talking about the people in all the world, they worship the dragon. That's a metaphorical term. We're in, we're in a middle section of Revelation that focuses on Satan, his rebellion in heaven before creation and his activities on the earth and in the tribulation period. And already, as a term to describe his character, God has called him the dragon. Now, that's it. For this last day, seven-year period, the key to understanding everything is the whole world worships Satan. You take that, you work backward. The world worships Satan. It's what Satan has always wanted. Now, <laughs> I, I've been in church for a lot of years. I hear somebody say, oh, you mean everybody's going to go and draw pentagrams and wear black hooded robes and sacrifice animals in the forest? That's not Satan worship. He's got to laugh all the way to the bank at that stuff. That's not Satan worship. You want to know what Satan's worship is? Okay, Jesus gives it to us. John eight forty four. 
He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. By the way, the scriptures tell us Satan doesn't appear as a goat head and, you know, the freaky kind of stuff that we think about that's taken from, you know, music album projects and (laughs) from movies. Satan presents himself as an angel of light. Satan presents himself as a good person, as the solution to our problems. So, how do we know if the world is getting closer to Satan worship? It's really, it's really easy. It's very simple. Because what Jesus said, Satan is a liar. In Satan worship, good is bad. Bad is good. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. Lies are the truth. The truth is a lie. Facts are our enemies. Lies are our friends. God is dangerous and evil is a solution. You know, I've always been surprised by something that God says about hell. In the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, God tells us about who's going to be in hell. Look at this list. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and then look at this, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, God comes back to that theme at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 22 is the last chapter of the Bible. In verse 15, God says, but outside, in other words, these are people that are in hell, outside for good are sorcerers, fornicators, murderers, idolaters. And then it's like there's an emphasis here. All who love and live, one translation says, all who love and make lies. So we can see that falsehood in any form, wherever it appears, falsehood is Satan's handiwork. Well, My time is running out for this message, and I'll pick this up next week, but I can't leave it here. I've challenged us to watch for signs, and and we've seen that the seminal fact of the tribulation is that the world worships Satan. And for anybody paying attention in the world that you and I live in, we understand that it's the force, and that's what Satan is. He is an angelic power, and he uses force. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. We see that it's very operative in our world today where the bad is good model has just about completely taken this world over. Now, I want you to work with me because we've we've been talking about signs. If we're getting close to the tribulation, then we got to look at what's going on and we we got to say, what does it have to say about what's going on right now and how can we interpret signs? Got to tell you this. I've been watching this since I was a kid. I listened to my dad talk about prophecy, and he would talk about how that at the end everybody would worship Satan and the Antichrist. I used to sit out there and I would think to myself, I don't see how that could happen because the world has got so many power centers and power brokers. How does the world go from so many belief systems to one? Remember a few moments ago I said start with the worship of Satan and work backward? Well, we know this. He uses a man. 
the Bible calls him the Antichrist. He uses a world leader. This is so clear throughout Scripture. He uses a world leader to unify all people around a political agenda so that he then can deliver the world to Satan. Now, in the Bible, as we've seen already in this little section of Revelation, the Bible uses the metaphor dragon to refer to Satan. As you know, many of you from, even if you just watch this in the movies, the Antichrist is often referred to as the beast because of his cruelty. Now, read that with me. And the dragon, Satan, gave the beast, the Antichrist, the dragon gave him his own power and throne and great authority. And then in verse 3, there's a little reference to an attempted assassination on this Antichrist where, well, the Bible says he seemed he was wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the Antichrist, to the beast. Then that's what we see. They worship the dragon, Satan, for giving the Antichrist such power, and they also worship the Antichrist. Well, as, as I said, it's been a popular part of our culture inside the church and even outside the church in entertainment for a lot of years. And a lot of people have guessed at who the Antichrist is. You know, I get asked that question a lot. Who do you think the Antichrist is? And do you think the Antichrist is alive today? It's not a big thing to me. I mean, he, he's Satan's dupe, whoever he is. I focus on his agenda, what he's going to do, and what would have to happen for this world to accept a single world leader. I mean, those of you who study geopolitics at all, you got to realize we have a lot of cultures in our world, and for the whole world to accept a single world leader, we, we know that some stuff would have to happen. When I watch 2020, I see all those things happening. Hey, I've thought about this for years. If you, if you pull me aside when I'm 25 years old and you tell me what has to happen before a single leader can be accepted in the world, I, I would say, well, first of all, there's got to be global chaos. Because what do we know about prosperity? <laughs> we know that nations don't change leadership in prosperity. They change leaders when there's chaos. In addition to that, the second thing we would have to have is globally weak leadership. If you have strong leaders, they don't tend to surrender their authority over to some other authority source. And beyond that, the people tend to follow strong leadership. Well, I'm going to tell you something, and I don't want to, I don't want to have anyone being unnecessarily offended. And you have to understand, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about one particular political agenda. I, I just think it goes across the board. We have the weakest generation of leaders, to my knowledge, in the history of the United States. But it isn't just in the United States. When I look around the world, we have especially globally weak leaders. I mean, for one thing, it's like these leaders just give us tweets today. They just give us little bursts. I mean, in the old times, leaders on the left and on the right, leaders in all kinds of systems used to fully flesh out agendas. But today it's, I mean, and on top of that, we have some of the most profane leaders. I mean, leaders are saying and doing stuff that if I had done in middle school, I got kicked out of school, but these people are up there running things. I mean, I, just to go to a sensitive place. I mean, in just 2020, we have seen a complete shutdown. Our leaders have said we had to shut everything down. Now the leaders are reversing course. 
And it was like, we're supposed to just say, okay. I, I don't even know which one is right. Maybe the first one's right. Maybe this one's right. I, that's beyond me. I'm just saying they, what, what, what we're being told by our leaders is mutually exclusive. It's contradictory. And I don't think it has to do so much with the specific issues as much as just we have globally weak leaders. Number three, before one leader could take power, there would have to be lockstep Orwellian thinking. If that Orwellian throws you, there was a book written by a guy named George Orwell called 1984 in which he looked forward and saw a totalitarian world system in which there could be complete control of thinking. So in order for one leader to take power, there would have to be lockstep Orwellian thinking. Well, let's go to number four. For there to be lockstep Orwellian thinking, there would have to be total control of the messaging. You know, we have something in our times the world's never had before. We have electronic media. And that electronic media has gotten, well, I mean, all of us are part of it pretty much. But now we're watching something happen. We're watching that media take control of the messaging. And if there's any message that's not exactly in line with the thinking of that media center, it gets, it gets shut down. You know, one of the words that we hear a lot today is fact-checking. But you know what? Here's the thing about fact-checking. If you talk to someone who's completely, totally conservative, they think anything progressive is wrong. So consequently, if they fact-check anything that doesn't fit with their message, they're going to rule out. If you take someone who's totally progressive and they try to talk to someone who's not, then consequently they feel like, well, that person is wrong, so what they're saying is not fact. And you and I are watching as we... <laughs> the control of the messaging. You know, we were promised in our times that we were going to have the democratization of information, but right now we have anything but. Again, if you had asked me when I was 25 what's going to have to happen before the world will accept one leader, I would say, well, you'd have to have global chaos, you'd have to have global weak leadership, you would have to have lockstep Orwellian thinking, you'd have to have total control of the message, and here's the big one, you would have to have 24-hour scrutiny and a total absence of privacy, the end of individualism. In the Bible, talking about the, the Antichrist, the Bible would say everyone would have to have the mark in the forehead or in the hand. And anyone without the mark could not do business, could not buy or sell. Total control. Do you see what I see? We're watching. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, like the water is warming up so gradually we don't know it's hot. Well, okay. Our time is gone, and we're going to pull over to the side of the road, and we're going to stop here today, and we're going to travel on next week in this. And somebody, I know, I understand our time. Somebody's watching this message. You say, Mark, all this, all this prophecy stuff, all this Bible stuff is crazy. No, this world is crazy. Let me tell you what's not crazy. The Bible says, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. In other words, Jesus is coming back in phase one of his return. And what happens at that moment is all who have accepted him who are dead will be raised to life. And those who are living at that moment will be instantly transformed. But remember, God says the problem with this world is sin. And the answer is the Savior. This is the next thing on God's calendar. I mean, with all these signs in place, I mean, it could happen any minute. 
Marianne and I were having coffee at breakfast this morning, and I said, you know, with all the things that are happening right now, I said, it just makes me feel some night we're going to go to sleep, and we're going to think it's any normal night. Well, you know, when the Bible says moment there, the Greek word is atomos. It just means a time unit so tiny it can't even be divided. We divide a second into milliseconds. So it's going to happen so fast, it's like one second, oh, one millisecond we're here, the next millisecond we're in heaven. Some night we're going to go to sleep and wake up with Jesus, those of us who are saved. Some morning we're going to wake up and we're going to think it's just any other day, and suddenly it won't be any other day. God speaks to our world. Two messages. What's wrong is sin. The solution is the Savior. And what it all adds up to for you and me right now is accept our salvation. Jesus has already come. He's already died for our sins and risen from the grave. Accept him as your personal healer. And then start looking for your Savior because he could come any day now. Now I could be talking to a lot of you who are Christians, and you say, Mark, I've been thinking about this for years. He hasn't come. <laughs> I have a favorite story. Lee Eklov in his sermon on heaven tells this story. It's a story of a pilot in the Air Force named Robbie Robbins who was a pilot during the first Iraq war. After his 300th mission, he was surprised by his commander with the instructions to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then crew drove all night to western Pennsylvania, and his buddies dropped him off at his driveway just after sunup. He was immediately greeted by a big banner across the garage that said, welcome home, dad. At, th at that point, Randy picks up the story himself. He said, when I walked into the house, the kids, about half dressed for school, screamed, daddy, Susan, came running down the hall. She looked terrific, hair fixed, makeup on, crisp yellow dress. And Randy said, how did you know? And his wife said, I didn't. Through tears of joy, she said, once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. That is where we are. The signs, we got a basket full. We know we're headed straight into the coming of the Lord. And we need to be ready every day. Well, as I said, we got a lot more to cover, and I'm out of time for today. I hope you'll check us out next week as we go forward with this. But throughout this whole message, I've said that the problem that we have, God has made it clear as he speaks, the problem is our brokenness. We've all, all of us. Let us never point to somebody else and say that person is the problem in our world. We all are the problem. We've all left God's ways to follow our own. But God didn't leave us there. He made a way by sending his son into the world to pay for our sin. In other words, he lived the perfect life that we can't live, and then he laid down on a cross, and he hung for six hours, and the way God looked at it, his blood paid for everything any of us has ever done wrong. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave to prove, it's like he put an exclamation point on God's plan. And anybody, I mean, the threshold is so low. Anybody who is willing to say, God, I am a sinner. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And, and the problem has been I've gone my own way but I want to go your way. And I, I trust that Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I trust that he rose from the grave. And I ask him to be my savior. And I don't want to wait till he comes back to the earth. I want him to be my king now. And at that moment, all the brokenness inside of you can be healed. And you'll have the promise of everlasting life. Would you like to make that decision right now? 
If you've never made it before, why not do it right now? Because all God's looking for is for you to invite Jesus to come in. Jesus said, I'm standing at the door knocking. If anybody opens the door, I'll come in. How about you opening the door today? You can pray with me. I'll pray this prayer slowly and you can repeat it after me if you wish. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way. It hasn't worked. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose in the grave. I choose Jesus to be my savior and my king. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving me. Wow, one more thing. If you just pray with me, I want to offer you a gift. We have a box that we've prepared here at New Spring. It's got a Bible just like I preach from. It's also got a little book I wrote, some other cool things. And this little book will help you understand a lot more about what it means to invite Jesus Christ into your life. If you're here in the continental United States, all you have to do is text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000. And we'll get this to you. If you're outside the United States, you can text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000, and we'll send you an electronic version of this book. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week as we gather together again to look at signs of the times. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.